to you from the studios at Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. I am Lisa Sharon Harper, and this is the Freedom Road Podcast. of Freedom Road, and it's a consulting group that's dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. And each month we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, activists, and artists in order to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we've got microphones in our faces and you guys are listening in. And also this time, this is the first time we're doing this video, y'all, and it's kind of freaky. I'm not even really sure... I'm not sure what to think about this, but I do know it's I know it's going to be really good. And the reason why we decided to do this video more than anything else is because we have a, a visual artist with us who's done panels in order to tell her story. And we want to be able to share her story with you, even as we do the podcast. So you're going to get to see the panels. And if you're listening in on iTunes or some other place like that, then you can go to our website at freedomroad.us um, to the podcast category and find us there. And then you can actually watch the video there, or maybe we'll even send it to YouTube. You can find it on YouTube as well. So this month, we actually have um, two guests who I am super excited about. First one I want to introduce is Emily Joy. Emily Joy, y'all. Emily Joy is a poet, and she is, she's also one of the co-creators of Church 2, the hashtag Church 2. So, Emily Joy, thank you so much for agreeing to come on. And I asked her last minute. So, you know, but it's it's we are in that kind of a moment right now where she said, yeah, absolutely, I'll join this conversation. So thanks, Emily Joy. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, and then my the next person we have is my longest time friend. Her name is Susan Sharkey. She is, hi, Susan. She's down there in Denver, Colorado. Um, and Susan is a visual artist, a painter. She's also a sculptor. Um, and she is a survivor of sexual abuse in the home and gender-based abuse in the church. And so this conversation we're going to be having today is about gender-based violence in the church and in society. Now, the thing is, as we are recording this episode, um, our nation is in the middle of witnessing the silencing of women that came forward to warn the Senate Judiciary Committee that the men, the man that they were considering for the highest seat really in the country, it's the only position that you can have for a lifetime appointment as a federal judgeship. And this is the highest court, the one that interprets the Constitution of the United States. She came forward to warn them that the man they were considering had done violence And it's not even just one woman. It's at least five women that have come forward so far. And one of those women talked about, well, the testimony that she gave through her written affidavit or her written her written statement was that it's possible that Judge Kavanaugh was actually involved in multiple gang rapes. And so. The violence was bad enough, but the issue at hand in the Kavanaugh conversation and confirmation is his credibility. 
You know, he lied about it. He refused to call for an FBI investigation to clear his own name. He refused to ask the committee to compel his friend, Mark Judge, to come forward and offer witness testimony. Judge was named as an accomplice by the survivor, um, Christine Blasey, um, Blasey Ford, um, uh, who was the first woman to come forward and the one who testified last night. Just two hours before this taping, the Judiciary Committee voted not to compel Mark Judge to testify and to proceed with the and to proceed with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. So the weeks long process of women coming forward to reveal the ways they were attacked by Kavanaugh have been triggering to women across the country. It was triggering to me. Was it triggering to you guys? Yes. <laughs> I mean, so like for real, like yesterday, just yesterday when I was flying, I was flying home um, on, on the plane, on the flight from Chicago to D.C. And I was listening just, you know, as, just as literally as I was supposed to have my iPhone off, but it wasn't off. And I was I was watching um, the the testimony um, as it went through or um, and. Watching, watching Christine Blasey Ford give her testimony, and I just was weeping in my seat. Did you guys have similar experience? Yes. Yeah. So it's been triggering. This has been triggering for us. And there's a way that, you know, what we have, um, what we've, what we've been experiencing is that we heard the account of Julie Swetnick, um, you know, when I heard that account, my body actually shook. It literally shook. Mark Judge and Brett Kavanaugh, she claimed, were a part of a pack of boys that used to drug women and get them drunk on grain alcohol for years in order to gang rape them. The GOP said that this was over the top, right? So, but I was in college around the same time that Miss Swetnick was in college, and I can testify that grain alcohol was actually a really huge thing back then, and um, and the the beer bongs. And so, when when he says I like beer, I like beer, all I could think was I know a lot of people who like beer, and especially in college, and they were doing beer bongs, which basically means that they were drinking a whole can of beer in one gulp. Like that's what that's what it means to like beer in that kind of a group. Um, so we all watched Senator Lindsey Graham's his screed in support of Kavanaugh. He said, you've done nothing to apologize for. To say that he had to erase her testimony from his mind and annihilate her personhood in his heart. Let's just be real about that. But the most disheartening thing to me, Emily Joy and Susan, was when I saw in all of that time, I kept seeing white men in the church who I know, who I've worked with over the years, usually older, defending Kavanaugh. Um, with the same talking points that they heard on Fox News, the exact same conservative talking points. So I, friends, I've asked Emily Joy and Susan here to join us on Freedom Road podcast to help us understand the impact of patriarchy in inside the church and outside the church. So, guys, we'd love to hear from you what you think about this topic as well. Tweet me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. Also, we see you sharing this podcast with friends and networks and commenting on Facebook and Instagram. And that is awesome. Keep it coming. We love it. 
Our listening community is growing every single month, and we really appreciate you and love that you are not just content to listen in. You are actually engaging, and you are inviting your friends to join in on Freedom Road. So, Susan, I want to start with you, dear, 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 beautiful friend. When we first met, one of the points that brought us together was that we both were working through the healing process of our Me Too stories. Yes. Yes, I would say the thing that brought us together. Actually, that is actually really true. That is true. We were in the middle of a Bible study, a women's Bible study in Times Square, and we got to talking about our stories. And honestly, I don't even know what happened to that Bible study, but we kept being friends. (laughs) We were the only two left. That's right. It's really true. In the end, we kept kept meeting for prayer and, and getting together. And we've walked with each other over 27 years of healing. And I know your story is not wrapped up in a bow. And I don't think any of our stories really ever will be because in many, many ways, there's there's been deep damage done to our souls. When Me Too and Church Too broke open last year, we had a talk about how powerful it could be if you could share your story with women in the church. And so I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your courage today. In many ways, following following the example of Christine Blasey Ford the day after she gave her testimony. You're going to speak your truth. And and I also want to thank you for for doing the work ahead of time to paint panels that demonstrate your story, that actually tell your story through pictures. And so as you're telling your story, I'm actually going to share with our with our viewing audience through the through Zoom (laughs) and um, and through the video, I'm going to share with them the panels that you've made. So, Susan, would you share your story with us as much as you feel comfortable? I grew up in in rural America. I am a survivor of sexual abuse, which started when I was four, which is kind of a depiction there of me at about four when this first started. And then just that whole darkness that came over, that event was like a lightning strike. And that's why I depicted it that way. But it left this dark presence on my life. And uh, that's kind of what that what that depicts. And and be quiet. Don't um, do what I say, but be quiet. Don't tell anybody that those kinds of messages. So the silencing actually started at four years old by your perpetrator. Do you mind me asking what happened? Um, I uh, was molested by several family members over the course of uh, about six years, as far as my memory. Um, These all happened at family events. So I have, you know, it's kind of crazy around holidays. But so holidays, they happened usually around holidays. Uh, because we were all together, the whole family was together, and and so most of the events were um, associated with holidays. When you think back, I remember one time we we had a conversation years ago, and and you told me about one particular scene that you'll never forget. Do you have a scene that you still remember, and that that? Like um, like Christine Blasey Ford talked about, is lodged in your hippocampus 
It's like it's there and you have to deal with how to manage it. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to speak it. If you if it's Uh, not the the feeling of being trapped, the feeling of not having any choice, any any strength, being weak, being vulnerable um, and carrying that then with you your whole life. And that being something, yeah, you got to manage. You got to know where it comes from and manage it. So um, it never at least for me, it it started so young that that stuff was so imprinted that it, it's a constant, you know, struggle to, to keep it away. You know. The image that's on the screen for those who are listening in is uh, it's a huge lightning strike, just as Susan said, and the lightning hits the ground and you see this hovering figure. Who is the, what is the hovering figure? The, the, is that the spirit? Is that the Holy Spirit? Is that the perpetrator? That's it. it it's the darkness that follows me because of it. It's like a shadow. I would say that that follows me because of, of what happened to me. And I like when I first time I ever saw this, I was really struck because I've never known you with like the long hair and the bow in the back. (laughs) And she's wearing a blue dress. It's almost like literally it's almost like Wizard of Oz, you know, like, (laughs) but it was. was. She was from Kansas. That's why. (laughs) So literally like this little girl, four year old girl from Kansas experienced this. Thank you so much, Susan. What was your response when it happened? What, what, What did you do? Um, and I, I was confused and I tried to tell people nobody. I mean, I tried to tell people in my family and no one would hear me. And so I learned not to, <laughs> I learned not to talk about that, sorry, especially what? within my family. It was all very hidden and very quiet and don't cause any problems. And it was a lot of self, a, a lot of blame. What did it look like for them to not hear you? What did it look like for them to silence you when you said that they didn't listen? Like, how did they not listen? I, I have one incident where my mother said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it was a blame thing. And so I, oh, no, I'm responsible for what's happening. So I didn't want to tell anybody. I felt like, you know, I owned it after that. So it's very similar in a lot of ways to what we what we've witnessed as a nation, the blaming of the of the victims of the survivors. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was probably five years old at that time. And it's like, what are you doing? I had no idea what was happening to me at five years old. And it was a woman who was doing it. Yes. My mother. (laughs) Did you ever tell anybody at your church? Um, Yes. Um, when this first happened, I talked about it at church. I, I, I want to mention this, too, because um, I'm a visual artist. So there would be all of these pictures at church of Jesus with the little children. And he was taking them through the storm and he was saving them. And he never saved me. And because of that, it kind of caused the disconnect with church. It's like. If Jesus saves all the little kids, but not me, why? What's going on here? And it was always a confusion. 
How did people at church respond? Like, who did you tell and how did they uh, respond? I, my Sunday school teacher, I remember I told and she told me, we don't talk about those things, kinds of things at church, honey. Go home and talk to your mom and dad. And you know, I couldn't go home and talk to my mom and dad. Wow. My goodness. These are the stories that we tell on Freedom Road. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you candid conversations from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Hey, everybody, we have Emily Joy Poetry on the podcast today, and she has so graciously given us the opportunity to share some of her poetry with you. And so during our breaks, during this podcast, we're going to be listening to Emily's poetry. The first one is, Thank God I'm a Virgin. Well, thank God I'm a virgin. Or he probably wouldn't want me. I thought as I listened silently while he told me that he just couldn't be with someone who had been with someone else, which is like 90% of adults by the age of 25, so your already limited pool is shrinking very quickly, but don't let me discourage you. Carry on. Tell me how you saved yourself, how you saved up enough points with God to buy an unspoiled bride, and you will not settle for less. Tell me about her white dress, how it will mean something. Tell me what it means. Tell me what it's like to have nothing you regret, to have made it through life unscathed by either bliss or pain. What does that feel like? Is it very lonely? Or does it just feel safe, like keeping your cocoon heart all wrapped up and tucked away, hoping to God someday it becomes a butterfly before it dies from the frost? I hope whoever she is, she meets all your expectations. I hope enough of her heart is intact for you to feel like the wait was worth it. I hope she never knows you wouldn't have wanted her if she wasn't a virgin. Everybody knows a girl is only as valuable as the men who haven't touched her, only as desirable as the experiences she hasn't had. But baby, when you get to her, she better know what to do in bed. She better satisfy your wildest pornographic fantasies, know all the right ways to move body parts she has never had the chance to use, because God would never fail you, right? on his timing now he owes you anything less is not the bill of goods they sold you so i hope it works out for you i really do but if it doesn't just remember what i told you that a heart cannot be divided into pieces and given away until there is nothing left that the greatest gift you can give someone has nothing to do with your flesh that love is really just grace that a lifetime of avoidance does not prepare one for a lifetime of joy and pain that virgin is not a sexual preference nor is it your birthright baby your insecurity is showing she chose you more do you want?
You can hear more of Emily's poetry at emilyjoypoetry.com. So, Emily Joy, at a time in our nation and in our churches when God seems to be shedding light on devastation caused by the hierarchies of human belonging that have existed in our nation and, and inside the church, we're, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of Church 2. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I mean, I really, honestly, I don't know the story, and I feel kind of dumb because <laughs> I feel like I should know the story by now. It's been almost a year. Um, but but what is the story? How did Church 2 start? What was the thing that inspired it for you? Um, honestly, so I had, um, you know, obviously been following along with all of the Me Too stuff, me and like literally all of my friends and had my own sort of like weird story that I had never shared that I and I didn't really know sort of what box to put it in ever, you know, so I, it, over, you know, 10 years, I'd just been kind of sitting on it and, you know, we all kind of have like our little mental filing cabinets and I just like, didn't really have a, like a, a file in the mental filing cabinet for it. So it was just kind of floating out there. And I was like, well, someday I'll write about this someday. I'll, I'll figure out a way to share this. That makes sense. All of the me too stuff started happening. And I like, I just got really angry (laughs) one day. It was like, I don't know, like two or three other men that day had been like Hollywood people had been accused of, of sexual assault. And I just got really, really angry. And I was like, this is horrible. Like, but everyone's being so brave. Like people are being so brave by like coming forward and telling the truth. And I was just so inspired. And so I was like, I think now is going to be the time to share my story. So I texted my group text and I was like, should I out my abuser on Twitter? And they were, they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. Um, so, so I poured myself a glass of wine and I sat down and I wrote out my story. And, and so my best friend Hannah and I started the tag together that night because pretty much as soon as I shared my story, people started responding to it, right? Like getting a lot of really like, um, important feedback and people telling me, Oh, something similar to this happened to me at my church growing up and all this kind of stuff. So Hannah texted me and she was like, Hey, like, I think that we need to like have some kind of way to have this conversation. Cause it seems like people are really interested in it. And we had talked about like how it, it sort of, um, des- deserved, we thought its own separate kind of treatment primarily because even though obviously like every church two story is a me too story, right? There's some, there's some specific causes and aggravating factors in church that you don't find elsewhere. So like, for example, you're not going to find Harvey Weinstein, like quoting a Bible verse to justify his actions. Right. And yet you will with church. So we were like, this kind of deserves its own separate conversation. There's some factors here that would necessitate a separate space for it. So, so we kind of went back and forth and decided on church too, because it was short and we figured people would understand what it meant. And so we tweeted it out and, um, I went to bed and woke up the next morning and there was like thousands and thousands and thousands of tweets. And it literally has not stopped. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It, it, well, let me ask you this. Do you know if up to that point there had been like a previous church two moment where where women in the church actually told their stories of abuse inside the church? Or was that a first? It feels to me in my memory that it was a first. So the visibility is a first. 
we've been trying. I mean, I just, I think back to, uh, oh, I don't know. It was, it was like right after I got out of college. So it was probably like five years ago or so the sovereign grace ministry, Mm-hmm. Um, scandal that happened where it came out, all their churches were abusing children and this kind of stuff. And there had been like these massive cover-ups at super high levels, like up to like celebrity pastors, like CJ Mahaney and stuff like that. And he's still doing conferences and writing books because this was before and nobody cared. And so, yeah, no, I mean like the, the visibility was a first. And I think it happened at the particular moment that it did because of me too. And because, um, this is clearly steam that's building in yeah. our society right now, but no, I, the we've been trying <laughs> we've been trying but it hasn't been, people had not been listening until yeah. now yeah until now so you know so when you when you tear your 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 own church to story how did people in your church respond like how how, how did at the first, time or now how did they res- well that's that this is both yeah how did yeah. they respond at the time when did you did you share about it then or was it was it silent? You had never told anybody. Um, I had told people I had told people like later, you know, like friends and stuff like when I when I got close enough with people, that was usually a thing that I shared with them. And but I mean, like, like to that. your church, you know what I mean? Like but, coming forward. Uh, oh, but not divulging. No. So so what happened was I was basically groomed for a romantic relationship by an older man who was in his 30s when I was 16. He was a volunteer in the youth group. And it was very short lived. He didn't assault me or anything like that yet. I, he was going to, but it was, it was found out before he did, but it was like this very like weirdly traumatic thing where like, he told me that he wanted to marry me and all this, like all this, like really like intense stuff was happening. And it turned out he's been doing this before me. He went on to continue to do it after me. Like, it's just, he's like a serial predator. And so I was 16 and nobody really understood consent. No, no, I didn't have, I didn't have access to any adults that had a positive understanding of sexuality or understood consent at all. So pretty much every adult treated me like I was like a co-perpetrator in this like scandalous youth group thing. And nobody really understood like, Hey, a 16 year old can't consent to a romantic relationship with a man in his thirties, particularly someone who is a spiritual authority figure Exactly. Right. Like this kind of, no one got that. And so when it was found out, I was basically punished. I was grounded. I was um, made to call him and apologize. The last time I ever spoke to him was my parents making me call him and apologize. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and, and so it was months and months and months later before I, before I ever talked to a single adult who understood that that was not my fault. But at that point, it was too late. Like I had internalized all of the the shame and the damage from that, you know? Yes. Yeah. Wow. My God. Church too. Church yeah. too. You know, I just got back from a conference where I was speaking with Belinda Bauman, who was on, on our very first podcast. I know I love her. We were, it was with Belinda Bauman and um, Nikki Toyama Sato. And we were speaking at this Really, 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 really high-powered evangelical gathering called The Gathering (laughs) down at this really, 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 really swanky hotel, Ritz-Carlton, you know, somewhere down in Miami. And, And so these are, these are, 
folks who basically they kind of rule the world. They kind of they kind of rule the especially the evangelical church world. And I think what was really really striking to me was that they seemed the ones who came to our session and our session was packed were ready for the conversation. I think they've just seen too much to not be ready. But what was really, really striking is I did, I really did not have a theology to hold or understand why they knew this was wrong. Because the theology that they had received, right, was affirmative of patriarchy. So, Susan, I want to transition to you now. You know, we used to talk about your church, the church you were going to when we first actually started to get to know each other. And, you know, you used to talk about how your church was not helpful for your healing process. So so let's just put it that way. Let's, let's put it, in, I'm going to put it nice and you can put it any darn way you want to, right? So, um, but what I also want to do is I want to pull up the next picture on the video. Okay, so we're going to show you the obey picture. When, oh boy, <laughs> this is. Just tell us, how did you get to this church? Uh, because this is how I felt in church right here. You have to do it this way. And the the real message was your husband is your head. He's been ordained by God to lead his family. So everything he says is right. Mm. And so you need to, and even, you know, the scripture, obey your husband as to the Lord. And then you start looking at the words you use with, for, for Lord God. You know, we talk about submitting, surrendering, worshiping trusting his ways above our ways, all of those things. When you are making your husband your Lord, it's a horrible, horrible, degrading thing. And the church, the message to me from the church was trust Jesus. He'll make it all turn out. Don't don't bother your husband. Don't say anything to your husband. Don't Mm -hmm. confront him because he's under God's authority. So you have no right to, if you want to say anything, go to God, but don't go to your husband. And just horrible, horrible messages to in terms of myself as a woman and degrading who I am as a woman. And I I saw this in multiple churches. This wasn't just one example. This, especially if if we met with the pastor together, it (laughs) I was told you need to be a better wife over and over again. If you were submitted, this wouldn't be happening. And he was always let off the hook. What was the this that wouldn't be happening? Um, That I would be dissatisfied in my marriage. If you would submit more, you would be more satisfied. Okay, so y'all can't see it, but my head just cocked to the side like, what? Like, you know what I mean? So (laughs) that has been a really hard thing to get over because a lot of this was done by women, too. I mean, there was a lot coming from the pulpit. You you would hear this coming from the pulpit. But so yeah, what were what were some of the ways that it came? Like how did how was that theology taught? Because I don't think they literally stand there and like have a well maybe they do have a class in how to submit. They probably do, but but usually usually it's actually is true. It usually though it, it kind of comes through everything. Like there's an there's an ethos. It kind of seeps through Bible study and worship, and who's up front. And so what did it look like in your church context? 
even in the church that I was most recently in, which was in the last couple of years, the woman that was the head of women's ministries wanted to preach Sunday morning and they wouldn't let her. Now she pushed it and they did let her, but there were people that didn't go to church because she was preaching Sunday morning from the pulpit and she was a woman. Okay. So that's one way I know I've experienced that one. (laughs) Seriously, as a, as a woman who preaches a woman who teaches yeah, that that's a that's a really, really common thing. In fact, that's one of the reasons why it took me so long to actually even get to find my own voice as a preacher or teacher is that I I actually believed that lie because it had been told to me. So I understand that a lot. What were some of the other ways? Like what about Bible study or, um, you know, counseling? It was it was um, I mean, the book I remember the most um, yeah, tell us that, about that we studied was called Fascinating Womanhood. Oh, <laughs> you remember this, Emily? I burned that book. I'm Let familiar with it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've a, done a lot of research. It is a horrible book. Horrible, because that's that's the message. Okay, so your husband, the nicer you are to him, the better he'll treat you. That was not my experience. And Lisa knows this. The nicer or the more submitted I was to my husband, the more he took advantage of me. And and I was in a horrible situation thinking I was doing what God wanted me to do. Now, now, just like for for folks who are listening in, one of the things that that um, strikes me is that when we when we I think what what's missing here is the theology, the the theology of the image of God, the reality that we are all all of us, all genders made in the image of God. And that means intrinsically because of the text, the thought of being made in the image of God and created to exercise dominion in the world is inextricably linked in the text. You can't take one from the other. If you are human, you're created to exercise dominion in the world. And so for women who are dominated by men, whether it be through sexual attack or abuse, or whether it be through verbal domination or emotional domination or theological domination, it is actually the the experience of being dominated that actually crushes the image of God in us, silences the image of God, mutes the image of God in us. And so in that church, in those churches, and they're still there very much, you know, they're still there, where where patriarchy um, has, has been legitimized through theology that only starts in Genesis 3, does not start in Genesis 1. They conveniently start the story at the fall, and they promote gender relationships that are literally in the text fallen relationships where the men the man is dominant over the woman and i think that when you theologically when you think of this you have to understand that it's it's either one of two things that is happening in genesis 3 either this the situation where men are dominating women is god's prescription for health, it's actually the prescription that God gives the world. In other words, it's what God wants to happen, or it's a description of what it looks like to live outside of the covering of God's shalom. 
outside of the will of God. And I think that the churches that, that gravitate towards that, and I would, I mean, I, this is, it's like hard complementarianism. It's the kind of complementarianism that actually it's more about, it, it's about a male domination at all costs. But quite honestly, I know I have friends and quite honestly myself, I mean, I would challenge even just what I just said, that there's really no such thing as hard or soft, you know, that patriarchy is patriarchy. When you, say that only men have the call of God to exercise dominion, you're literally erasing half of the human race from being human. Because on the first page of the Bible, what it means to be human explicitly in the text, male and female are made in the image of God. And that's a revolutionary statement said at a time and in a place where women were not thought to be made in the image of God. So, I I have one more question for you, Susan, Uh, particularly with regard to this is what did your healing require? What did it take for you to heal from this lie? And what is it taking? Talking to my sisters, Mm -hmm. uh, finding you, uh, (laughs) you know, and my sisters that have shared that pain and sharing and, and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Can you share with us what's the next painting? Uh, let's see. Oh, I have the uh, the two women. And one of the reasons that I have the younger woman supporting the older woman is that that's what's happening. You know, your generation, Emily, are, are ministering to us because we need you. And we need we, we were so indoctrinated and it, it, it's a really hard thing to get it over. And we need our younger sisters to come alongside of us. So uh, that's why I painted it that way. I love that. It's really powerful. There's another one that comes after that. Which one is the one that comes after that? I believe. Oh, the, the praying. Prayer um, and, and this is, this is just the inner, the inner work. Who am I? Who am I as a woman? Who am I um, on this planet at this time? What, you know, how do I express who I am? Um, And that just takes a lot of looking within and um, did a lot of that, a lot of that, a lot of therapy, a lot of of that kind of stuff. therapy. A lot of inward work. A lot. You did your work. You did your work. So these are our stories. We're walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. We're back with Emily Joy Poetry, and the second piece we're going to be listening to today is called Everything Must Burn. I stood up and walked out of. 
between finding my peace more present in the desert and a deity, more obsessed with sex than redemption between God's not dead and love the sinner, hate the sin, my faith broke. Snapped like the last branch falling from the tallest tree in the middle of a forest fire, hit the ground running, and I was not fast enough to catch it. I could not answer my questions in time. It disappeared into the night while I continued to wonder if there was a god up there who was as angry as I am, or if he just assumes everybody means well, has a little faith in the system, and goes on with his day, like everybody else who says they know him. Jesus, if you're up there, your followers are doing a pretty terrible job of letting people know you love them. Seems more like you want us to be miserable. Follow the rules, shut your eyes, hope someday it's worth it. That the pain goes away, that God was not inflicting it all along. Pulling us on his heavenly puppet strings, watching us dance for him. So I dance. While everything around me is on fire. Cross my fingers while I say creeds, I mostly just hope I believe. Watch everything that used to help me sleep at night turn to dust at my feet. And I am so tired of dancing. I am so tired of finding darkness where light was advertised, where I was not even looking for it, where I was hoping for the best. And yes, there will be light when the flame catches in every corner and every golden calf is destroyed. And we recognize it as a blessing, not a threat. When justice rolls down like a mighty blaze, consuming everything in its path, incinerating every time you ever asked if you matter to God, if there is more to love than just not messing up, if we are here for a reason, or if everything is as pointless as it seems, I can't believe in nothing. No matter how hard I've tried. And the science of a forest fire is that everything must burn in order to grow again. So... Burn me to the ground till my ashes become ashes and blow away in the wind of your breath when you whisper, Behold, I am making all things new. If you ask me, did you lose your faith? I will tell you no. I did not lose it. You can hear more of Emily's poetry at emilyjoypoetry.com. So, Emily Joy, in Susan's story, we see an interesting intersection, right? The intersection of Me Too and Church Too. She wasn't sexually abused by someone inside the church, but patriarchal culture and instruction worked to silence and bind her up, right? And making her unable to find her voice and agency. And I imagine that there are a lot of people, even those listening in and watching right now, who are suffering in this way in our churches. I wondered if you have a sense of how pervasive this problem actually is. Yeah, I think that's very common just based on my familiarity with like all the stories that have been shared over the last, you know, almost year. When you think of church abuse, a lot of times the first thing that 
comes to mind is like the Catholic church or like that, the, the story of, um, you know, the pastor abusing or assaulting a congregant and these sorts of things. And that there's a, a whole lot of those too, but there's also a lot of other stories like people who, who were raped by their boyfriend and then went and told their youth group leader and the youth group leader said, what were you wearing? Or people who were, you know, assaulted in some kind of other context and then felt like it was their fault because they had internalized so much shame and so much judgment and so much, um, sexism or, or queer phobia or any of these things over the years, right. That they had internalized all that. And so automatically assumed that it was their fault when they got those teachings from the church. Right. And so, so yeah, I think, I think that's extremely common. Um, the church is in a really unique position to, um, really re-traumatize a lot of, a lot of victims. Wow. So, wow, that's kind of a deep thing you just said. And it's really true in Susan's story that you have people who have been victimized, who are survivors of of sexual attack. And then they come into the church and because of this, the culture of patriarchy in the church, they get abused again. Yeah. Yeah. Is what you're saying. So the church, which actually has, and I love this, I'm bringing, I'm, I'm kind of channeling Belinda right now, but, but th- something that, that she says, and actually, actually, we both said in that statement, in the silence is not spiritual statement, the church should be and has the capacity to be one of the places where you find the most healing because we actually do have, we have Jesus. We have the resurrection. He beat death. So of course he should be able to beat or, or heal our, our scars. He should be able, the church, which is the hands and feet of Jesus should be able to come in and actually offer the healing that he offered to, to the bleeding woman or to the woman at the well or, or to the woman with the alabaster bar, jar to the, the, the quote adulterous woman who was actually probably being sex trafficked. Right. Like. Right. So what is it in our churches that actually holds us back from from being that? Yeah. So so this is like the hard pill to swallow portion of the program. Right. Because I get asked that question constantly and people are like, what what how can we fix this? How can we make our communities safe? And what they want is they want behavior modification answers. Right. So they want me to tell them background checks for all your volunteers and, and have a sexual abuse policy in place. And, you know, these kind of things do prevention training and there's all kind of prevention training that you can do. And you should, I teach yoga at the YMCA and I just had to do my refresher training this week on child sex abuse prevention. Like it's out there. You can do it. It's all good stuff to do. And you should, but like, that's the answer that they want. They, they want me to say, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you will have this problem fixed. And the reality is that, First of all, background checks are not going to are not going to catch the majority of your predators in church because the majority of them are not on the sex offender registry. Okay. Number 2 though is that like behavior modification is not the answer here. The problem is that the actual answer requires interrogating some of your beliefs and some of your theology and that's really sacrosanct for a lot of people they don't they don't want to do that because i'm going to tell them because especially so i'll get guys uh pastors husband christian father uh pastor twitter okay right messaging me on twitter how do i help and i go here well here's joe smith pastor of such and such community church in someplace ohio let me click on this website and I click on his website to his church and I'm like, who's in charge leadership, six white men and a white woman in the nursery. 
Yes. And I'm like, you, then, okay, unless you're willing to stop hiring so many white men and divest from the sexual dysfunction that the evangelical church is built around, I don't know how you're going to help. Because the reality is that, you know, there's a lot of reasons why sexual abuse happens in the world. I'm not an expert in Hollywood. I'm not an expert in Washington, but like, but the church is my experience. And one of the big reasons that sexual abuse um, occurs and is also hidden and re-traumatized in the church is because of the sexual dysfunction we call purity culture. Right. And that sex negativity, that queer phobia, purity culture is based in white supremacy. Like there's racial aspects of that as well. And it's like all of this stuff, unless you're willing to interrogate that ultimately you're kind of going to be putting a bandaid on a bullet wound. Like I hope that people do background checks and I hope that they do prevention training and I hope that they have a sex abuse policy. They should, you should do that yesterday. If you're a pastor or a faith leader and you don't have those things, do them now. But like, Ultimately, we're going to put band-aids on bullet wounds if we don't deal with the underlying causes, which is a lot of this theology that people are really, really, really hesitant to interrogate. So I tell them that. And it really does feel like, um, you know, the parable in the Bible where the rich man comes to Jesus and he's like, what do I do? And Jesus is like, sell your possessions. And he goes away sad. And that's what I feel like. I'm like, sell your possessions, divest from the sexual dysfunction that props up the evangelical church and they're walking away sad because they're you know, not willing to not, do it. It's not even, it's not only the evangelical church though, right? We have yeah. to really recognize oh, absolutely. this. Oh, it's a problem in progressive churches. It's a problem in non-Protestant churches. Yeah. It's a huge issue. I harp on the evangelical church a lot, but yes. And, well, they're I, an I easy target it's right very now. important <laughs> to point out that it does happen and regularly in progressive churches too, because especially I think as progressive people, it's really easy to kind of like sit back and like, you know, hoo, hoo, hoo. oh, it's just the people who are not as enlightened as we are. And I'm like, well, you know what? Like Bill Hybels is just as guilty as Paige Patterson and Andy Savage. So <laughs> a well, there's amen. that. <laughs> amen. It's it's really, you know, you got to you, you call a thing a thing. Yeah. As uh, as Miss Yon Van Sant would say, and I hope she's listening. I hope she <laughs> likes this. So I want to hear from you now both like about where your faith is, like how since you've experienced, I mean, me too, you've experienced or me too, you've experienced sexual abuse, you've experienced um, uh, abuse against your personhood inside and outside of the church. And I just wondered, what has this done for your faith? You know, Emily Joy, I want to start with you. And then Susan, um, I want I want you to take us home with your with your paintings and then also to just share with share with us where you're at right now. But Emily Joy, what has this how how are you how how does church feel to you now? You know, are you going to church? Do you have a church? Yeah. Um, so I, I show up at church. Sometimes I crash landed in the Episcopal church a few years ago, um, and have just kind of hung out there for a little bit. I would say half the time I go to church and half the time I go to yoga. Um, and some, sometimes I get drinks with my priest. So I feel like, I feel like between all of that, like that constitutes a spiritual practice. Um, but yeah, no, I, and I, I chose the Episcopal church because it was so different than what I was raised in, that it's not that re-traumatizing, triggering feeling. It feels extremely different to me. Um, and I like the motions of church. I like I like intergenerational friendship. I like having a place to bring casseroles. You know, like 
I, you don't go to church and you really start to miss that stuff. And I mean, like everything, everything's problematic, but I was like, this seems less problematic. So I'm trying to harm reduction here. (laughs) Uh, I will say though, like, I like the, the community of church more than I like the actual beliefs. I was doing this exercise. I did a 30 day poetry challenge in the spring. And one of the, one of the days the challenge was to make like a found poem, which is where you um, like take something that already exists and just cross things out. And what you're left with creates the poem, right? So you can do it with like a newspaper article. You can do it with anything. I thought it'd be, this is probably, I'm such a, I'm a heretic. I, I thought it'd be funny to do it with the Nicene Creed and just, and just cross out the parts that I didn't like. Wow. Um, okay. And well, I, wasn't, I, wasn't left, here. I wasn't left with a whole lot. <laughs> um, it was, it was really beautiful though. What I was left with, I think the longer time goes on, I think I believe fewer things numerically, but the things that I have left, I believe a lot more strongly. And so, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of a community. Um, that's totally fine with that journey. So. Thank you for that. I mean, honestly, I really thank you for your honesty. Honestly, I think that in some ways, honesty is one of the most courageous things we can do today is to be honest with what we are not, where we're not certain yeah, about yeah. things. I think saying, I don't know, especially for me, cause I'm a person that like really likes to know things. And I'm a person that like really prides myself on being like competent and like informed. So for me, like saying, I don't know is a spiritual practice. Yeah. And then that's something, I mean, Jesus himself talked about humility, right? And, and, uh, Humility, and it's something that we, we don't practice very much inside the church. Now, Susan, I want to ask you, because when we talked about your story and where you are now, first, I want you to take us through the last panel or two that you have. Okay. Oh, I love this. I love this picture of you. <laughs> It's a great I, self-portrait. I need to work on this one. <laughs> this is so great. We have a whole lot of time, Lisa. Oh my gosh, no, so stop I, that. I did it pretty fast, but um, it's beautiful. Uh, I'm right now with my faith. I'm angry, very mm-hmm. angry, and mm-hmm. I think she kind of shows that. Um, I'm looking back through my life, and I'm looking at how much that religious teaching stole from me how many times how many things i did not do because i was told i couldn't i shouldn't it wasn't right for me and there's a lot of pain there a lot of pain a lot of pain um i can't be in a service with the white pastor can't do it cannot sit there with him above me look i can't do it And um, the last time I went to church, I went to church, walked out, went to my friend's church, walked out, said, can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, and and it is it's it's a gender issue. It is definitely a gender issue. But right now, anger, a lot of anger, which Mm -hmm. I think is tapping into a lot of anger in this country right now. There is a lot of. There is a lot of anger in, in the country now. I think, I honestly think that that what's happening is the patriarchy that has been hidden and just assumed in our culture and our systems, our structures and institutions, and kind of baked in, in terms of law, actually, that has been slowly and slowly and slowly whittled away at. I mean, literally, do you realize, I mean, this really blew my mind when I found this out, but that the last 
state in the union, um, which I believe was North or South, I know it was either North or South Dakota, um, that made rape within the context of marriage illegal, did that in 1995. It wasn't that long ago. 1995. Like, I was a full-grown adult when that happened. So the church has a lot of healing to do. The church has got has got to heal. Otherwise, we are going to... Well, we already have, actually. It's not even a matter of will. We, we, we have... Um, soiled the the witness of the of 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 Jesus. I want to ask you a question, though, Susan. I want to ask you, what what's your relationship now, though, with God? So, and how do you see God? I, have, I definitely have my spiritual practice, yeah. um, and I'm connected spiritually. Very yeah. important to me. Probably my spiritual practice isn't that different. It's how it's focused. In in terms of of just you know what I do spiritually, but the focus is different. It's not I'm not under anymore. We're yeah. coming together. <laughs> there is no more under <laughs> going on. When when you are praying to God, do you see God as a man? Both of you. That's a question for both of you. No. Susan is sure. Susan said, no. How about you, Emily? That's a great question because my my prayer, I think, looks so much different now than I think yoga is prayer, like meditation is prayer, like these kind of things. So it's not I, it's no longer that I'm necessarily praying to someone, mm-hmm. because I think one of the things that I've had to grieve is like belief in an inter- interventionist type of God. Right. Yes. So it's not I'm not necessarily like trying to pray to anyone, although I don't I don't I don't think of God as a man, although I don't particularly think of God as a woman. I think, I don't think of, I like God is genderless to me. Um, Mm -hmm. like in my, in my mental picture of them, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's more, it's more so that like this sense of prayer is an attempt to bring yourself in line with something bigger than yourself. Right. So it's not, it doesn't change external circumstances. What it changes is you. Right. So I'm more focusing on like that alignment rather than like praying to a specific being, I think, oh, is how good. I deal with prayer now. now that's a I'm good word, sure. alignment. <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, for me, I, I used to think of God as a man. And when I um, went to uh, a church one time and I started hearing them talk about God in terms of she, I mean, if my, literally my first thought was, this is heresy, right? <laughs> um, until I started seeing like the feminine form of God in the scripture, like literally like Ruach um, in uh, Genesis 1, 1, right? So the spirit of God hovered over the waters. That's literally a feminine word. It's a feminine form of the word. So here we have, you know, the, the Trinity has been masculinized in our theology. And as a result, our, our in the typical Christian 
imagination of God. God is in all three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All three are men. They literally cut women out of the picture of God. Even on the first page of the Bible, you actually have them say explicitly both men and women are made in the image of God. So my discipline, my, my prayer discipline actually literally has been to imagine God as both man and woman. But I have to say that honestly, in the retraining of my mind, I actually have to be more intentional about a, a retraining, about intentionally seeing God as woman. And that's not to say that God is not man. It's only to say that, in fact, I think, honestly, God is much more similar to what you just said, Emily, which is God has no gender. I mean, if we believe God is spirit, then I think the ultimate question has to be asked, does God have gonads? That's, I mean, that's like... <laughs> Let's be real. Does God have does God have sexual organs? No. Like God but does not have I'm It is sorry? fun to it is fun to say she and rile people up. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's the one part of the Nicene Creed that I do say is ah. we believe in the Lord or we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. She has spoken through the prophets. I, I change it to she and I say it loud <laughs> and I make I make sure everybody hears me. Say it loud, say it proud. Well, ladies, women powerful human beings who have been through the healing process after walking through fire and walking through war waged against your body and your soul and your mind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The conversations leaders have and the prayers that we pray on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox, but we will invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of every month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.